Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity to be here this morning to learn about your word. Please bless this time and may you be exalted. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, there's a famous quote from Benjamin Franklin that goes like this. In this world, nothing can be certain except death and taxes. Um, everyone is subjected to the throes of death, and taxes always seem to be the inevitable plight of every human being on the planet, okay? That's just normal. Now, I think while we can appreciate while, uh, the humor behind what Benjamin Franklin said here, I think we would all agree there's more things than just death and taxes that are certain. Um, one thing that you're also guaranteed to encounter is time. Time. Uh, everyone is born on a timeline, and no one can escape it. Uh, you can't pull a Marty McFly and, and, and go back in time to 1955 just, just for kicks. You know, it doesn't work like that. Um, as cool as it would be to do something like that, it's not even really scientifically possible. Like, I know, like, some people, like, try to think it's, like, say it's scientifically possible, but it's not, okay? Time is inevitable. You're bound to it. Uh, ladies, the average age you're going to live to is 81 years old. 81 years. That's 972 months. 29,585 and a quarter days, 710,046 hours, 42,602,760 minutes, 2,556,165,600 seconds. It's like, wow, that's crazy. Yeah, I know, that's, that's what it is. Gentlemen, the average age you're going to live to is 76 years of age. That's 912 months, 27,759 days. 666,216 hours, 39,972,960 minutes, and 2,398,377,600 seconds, okay? Time is a part of the fabric of our existence. No matter how hard you try, you cannot stop time. You cannot alter it or escape it. Everyone is bound to its influence. So, since you are a living, breathing human being here, you have two options. You can either deny the existence of time altogether, in which case this is going to be the longest sermon of your life, or you can accept the fact that time moves forward, that things progress and never stay the same. And I think we would all take the second option, obviously. We, we are forced to deal with time. Time is embedded into the framework of our existence, and that makes it a vital part of our lives. In fact, many people try to put a price tag on time. Um, have you ever heard the phrase, time is money? Time is money? Time is so precious that some people treat it like it's money. Imagine every second was a penny. Every second was a penny. And every second that goes by, you don't earn money. You don't earn a penny. You lose a penny. By the end of the day, you lose $864. $864 a day. Time is valuable because everyone's spending it on something. Um, and so the million dollar question is, uh, really, what are you spending your time on? What are you spending your time on? Uh, you can take your $864 and spend it on anything. You could save, uh, save it up and try to buy a house, you know, save up $864 a day and buy a house, which would take about a year and a half to buy a really nice one. Or you could buy 864 Laffy Taffies every day. And, you know, you might think that's kind of funny and, and, and clever, for the first few days, but just wait a while and you'll figure out that that's a dumb idea, okay? Time is precious. It's precious, and the clock is ticking. What are you spending your $864 on every day? What are you spending it on? It is, uh, if time is such an important part of who we are, 
you'd think the Bible would talk about it. And guess what? It does. It does. Um, surprise, surprise. But the Bible, the way the Bible introduces time to us might be a little bit more surprising than we first expected. Turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 5. Deuteronomy 5. Deuteronomy 5. And we're going to look at verse 12. It says, Watch over the Sabbath day that you might keep it holy, just as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you must serve and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath, idea a day of rest, that belongs to the Lord your God. And you must not do any work, neither you nor your sons nor your daughters or your male servants or your female servants, or your ox or your donkey or your domesticated animals or even your sojourner who is in your gate, and you that your male and female servants may rest just as you do. And you should remember that you were a slave in the, in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God called you out of there by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. For this reason, the Lord your God commanded you to practice the Sabbath day. Now, if you notice, this is one of the Ten Commandments. Which one is, which commandment is this one? You guys know? Yeah, Caleb. It keeps Sabbath holy, but what number is it? Number four. This is the fourth commandment. Very good. The fourth commandment is all about time. It's all about time and what God thinks about time. And God recognizes the importance of time because, after all, he created it. Well, in our Ten Commandments series, we've walked through the first three commandments and explored what they mean in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And now we turn our attention to number four, what is the fourth commandment all about in the Old Testament? The fourth commandment has to do with time. But if you scan those four verses, you're not going to find the word time anywhere. Uh, there's no mention of it. So the question you might have is, how does the fourth commandment have anything to do with time? Well, the fourth commandment introduces time to us through kind of a backdoor approach. It mentions the Sabbath, the Sabbath. And before I tell you what the Sabbath is and, and explain how it works, let me tell you up front what the point of it is. The Sabbath day expressed for us in the fourth commandment tells us that God owns your time. God owns your time. That's the theology behind the Sabbath day. But we need to unpack this more. And so, and to do this, uh, let me kind of give you a quick roadmap for where we're headed this morning, okay? And so we're in the Ten Commandments here, and here's the roadmap that we're going to be looking at. One Sabbath, two backstories, and three principles. So we're going to do it in that order, all right? One Sabbath, two backstories, three principles. So let's look at, really quickly, one Sabbath. What is the Sabbath and how does it work? The Sabbath is an ancient special day out of the week for Israel alone, as both a part of their religion and as a part of their national identity. And here's kind of what the Sabbath is. Um, the Sabbath is the last day of the week. That's what it is. The seventh day, which is Saturday. Saturday. The Sabbath happened on Saturday each week, and then Sunday would restart the week as usual. And the Sabbath was this weekly holiday that the Israel, Israelites celebrated by, get this, doing absolutely nothing. Doing absolutely nothing. That's how they celebrated the Sabbath day. Uh, they could just lay in bed, pull up the covers, you know, drink a you know, hot cocoa, and read a good book or something like that, all right? Uh, that, this was divinely sanctioned, God-approved laziness, okay? Um, they were allowed to indulge in once a week. Now, the word Sabbath 
doesn't mean Saturday, and it doesn't even mean the seventh day. It actually means stop. It means stop. That's what the word Sabbath actually means. And it's kind of like, you know, when you say, you know, your teacher says, stop, put your pencils down, you know, when you take a math test or something like that. That's kind of what's going on here. It means stop what you're doing. The Sabbath day was designed for each person in Israel to stop the work they would normally be doing all the other days of the week and encourage them to do something else. So Israelite men would work six days a week, and on the seventh day, the Sabbath day, they would stop and rest. That's the Sabbath day. They would do something else that's not so labor-intensive. So it's not so much that people were required to just sit in the corner and stare at a wall all day on Saturday. They were allowed... They were just not allowed to do any work, normal work, that they would typically do the other six days of the week. In our American culture, we have something very similar in place. We have Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday as the work days, right? Saturday and Sunday are still generally considered two days off. That's our, that's our kind of our Sabbath days. And Saturday is kind of a personal day. Sunday is kind of a religious day. So, uh, but the Sabbath kind of blends these two days together into one because it's both a religious and a national holiday. And so, you know, in America, you don't have to not work on Saturday, but, um, or, you know, you can actually work on Saturday if you wanted to. And on Sunday, you didn't have to go to church if you don't want to. But, but in Israel, on the Sabbath, you had to follow the Sabbath. In fact, God was so serious about the Sabbath that not observing the Sabbath was punishable by death. You would die if you didn't actually follow the Sabbath. Uh, Exodus 31.14 tells us, You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. It's like, that's crazy. But that's the way it was. God takes the Sabbath day very seriously. Because, you know, well, you might be you know, saying to yourself, well, it's just a weekly holiday, though. What's so wrong with working on Saturday back in those days? Isn't work a good thing? Isn't laziness a bad thing? So why is this praised here? Why is laziness praised? Why, why is hard work thrown under the bus here in a sense? Well, to answer that, we've got to go to our two backstories. Two backstories. Um, and a backstory is really just, um, it's just an event that happens in the past that explains why something happens later in the future. For example, a backstory always happens in Phineas and Ferb, um, you know, the, the, the evil Dr. Doofenshmirtz always tells his arch nemesis Perry Platypus a backstory. Uh, the backstory always tells why he's hatched the evil plot for the episode that he has. That's a backstory. Well, in the Bible, there are two backstories that gave way to the fourth commandment. And the first event is the creation story. And the second event is the Exodus story. Okay? So let's start with the creation story. The creation story. And uh, the creation story, um, really, to be able to kind of see this, um, we need to go back to the creation story to see it. But actually turn back to Exodus chapter 20, verse 8. Exodus chapter 20, verse 8. Because here, we have another, we have another record of the Ten Commandments. There are two times in the Bible... The Ten Commandments are mentioned. This is the other one. Deuteronomy 5 was, was one. Exodus 20 is the other one. And this tells us a little window about the creation story. Kind of gives us a little window into it. 
Uh, Exodus 20, verse 8, Remember the Sabbath day, that you might keep it holy. Six days you must serve and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day that belongs to the Lord your God. You must not do any work, neither your sons or your daughters or your male servants or female servants or your domesticated animals or even your sojourner who is in your gate. Because six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, along with the sea and everything that's in them, but, but he rested on the seventh day. For this reason, God blessed the seventh day and set it apart. Now, in this version of the Ten Commandments, the focus is on creation. Notice that. Six days the Lord God made heaven and earth. Well, that's, it, that's pointing us back to creation. So let's turn back to creation. Turn over to Genesis chapter 1, verse 20. Uh, let's actually look at verse, uh, sorry, chapter 2. Let's go to chapter 2, verse 1. Genesis chapter 2, verse 1. If I can actually flip my Bible. My Bible has so many pages in it that it's hard to flip sometimes. They're so thin. Um, Genesis chapter 2, verse 1, it says this. Um, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. Now before this, before this, was the climax of creation. On the sixth day, God created the land animals, and then he created man as the pinnacle of creation. Man was his prized creation. And God saw that everything he made was very good. In fact, in verse 31, you can see that. It says at the end of verse 31, And behold, it was all very good. That was creation. It was all good. It was perfect. God put his stamp of approval on it and sent the world spinning. But as we enter chapter 2, there's another day of creation. And it's actually not really technically a day of creation because God isn't actually creating anything on the seventh day. What is he doing on the seventh day? What does he do? You guys tell me. He rests. He stops working. He's, you know, hanging out in the hammock there, right? Not literally, obviously, but that's kind of, what he's, that's kind of what's going on here. And so, but, no, but notice, it says here in, in verse 2, And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had, he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work. God rested. Or literally it says, God Sabbathed. He Sabbathed. He stopped. He stopped creating. Six days he created, one day he stopped. Doesn't that sound kind of familiar? It kind of sounds like the pattern the Israelites were commanded to follow in the fourth commandment. Six days you shall work, but the seventh day is a day of rest. Where do you think that, that, that came from? That came from right here. And so Genesis 2 uh, is, is all about the pattern that is being set down for the Israelites here. They're kind of modeling after Genesis 2 in the create, when God created the world. Uh, so Genesis 2.3 says, so God, this, so God blessed seventh day and he made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. God made the Sabbath day holy. Holy means set apart. It means set apart. It means to be special, to be different. What's so special and different about the seventh day? God didn't do anything on it. That's what's so special. It's different. Really kind of what's going on here is God is saying this day is different because now instead of creating the world, we're going to sit back and enjoy it. We're going to enjoy creation. That's the, that's the uniqueness, the specialness of the seventh day. 
And so the purpose of the Sabbath day for Israel is that they were supposed to take a special day to stop working as well. They get to enjoy the fruits of their labor, just like God did. So that's kind of one backstory. The second backstory is the Exodus story, okay? And so this one comes from Exodus chapter 16, actually Exodus chapter 16. But before we get there, let me read to you again Deuteronomy 5.12, okay? It's very similar to, um, it's very similar to uh, Exodus 20, but it's a little bit different. And in fact, if you actually look at verse 15, it says this, And you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God called you out of there by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. For this reason, the Lord your God commanded you to practice the Sabbath day. It's very similar to Exodus 20, but it's different. It's different. It's talking about the, it's also, this one's talking about the Exodus story. This isn't talking about creation. So does the Exodus story link up with the Sabbath day? It does in kind of a weird way. Turn over to Exodus chapter 16. Exodus chapter 16. Exodus chapter 16. And uh, let's look at verse 16 for a moment. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it each one of you as much as he can eat. You shall take an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the, the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it in an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some, of, some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank, and Moses was angry with them. So what we have here is manna is falling from the sky. You guys remember the manna story? Manna is falling from the sky each day. And God commands Israel, don't pick up more than you or your family can eat for that day. If, if you do, what's, gonna, what's left over is going to spoil well, some didn't listen to God, and the, the man was spoiled for them. And they all, because, well, they all got scared that they, God wouldn't provide for them. That's why they did it, but it all spoiled. So, you know, you know, they should listen to God next time, really, in a sense. But the point here is that God is portioning out food for them that they have to gather each day. But look at verse 21. He says, morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. But on the seventh, sixth day... They gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil. And all that is left over, lay aside and, be, and be, to be kept till the morning. And so they laid aside and kept it till the morning as Moses commanded them. And it did not stink and there were no worms in it. Moses said, Eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none at all. So now they're, they're told to gather double on the sixth day. And normally you would think if they gather double, the man is going to spoil the next day. But not this time. Not this time. God allows it not to spoil. And the reason why is because he wants to set a pattern of six days you work and gather, seventh day 
you stop working and you get to enjoy the manna. And so it's not just creation that this is pointing back to, it's also the Exodus story, okay? So that's kind of the two backstories that are behind the scenes here of the fourth commandment. Now, what's the point of all this? What's the point of this? We talked about a lot here. Well, how do we pull this all together and make sense of this? What's, what's, what's the big deal, okay? There are three principles I think we can draw from this. Three principles. Number one, the fourth commandment is meant to broadcast that God owns all of time. The fourth commandment is meant to broadcast that God owns all of time. And that comes from the Exodus story. This, uh, what, we, what did we just learn from the Exodus story? God rescued his people from Egypt. In fact, the, the very next event that happens after he rescues them from Egypt is the manna story. That's the very next event. And so what's the very first thing God establishes with his people after he rescues them? He basically sets a schedule for them. Six days you work, one day you don't work. What's God saying? I own all your time. I own all your time. And the question is, well, God, how is it you can tell us what, what, you know, what we do in our time? How is it you have that say? Well, what did God just do? He rescued them from Egypt. They were a slave in Egypt, okay? So normally, once they were a slave in Egypt, now they're a slave of God. Um, think about it this way. Egypt once owned Israel. Now God does because he rescued them. And when Israel was in Egypt, did they get to set their own schedules? Did they get to like, you know, okay, I'm going to go, you know, to the spa today, and I'm going to go to Magic Mountain today, and I'm going to do all, you know. They couldn't do that, right? They were slaves. Egypt owned their time. Because Egypt owned them, they told them what to do and when to do it. That's the way it works. Well, when God rescued them from Egypt, what does that say? God says, now I'm your, I'm your master. Egypt's no longer your master. I own you. So I get to set your schedule. And the great thing about God's schedule is it's not burdensome. God says you get one day a week where you get to rest. Six days you will work, but one day you get to rest. God says, I'm going to set that for you. That's the pattern I set up um, in, in, here in Exodus 16, and that's the pattern that you're going to keep as the fourth commandment. So that's the principle that we can take away here from this particular story. And the principle that we take away for ourselves is one and the same. God owns all of time and God owns you. Therefore, God owns your time. God owns your time. And it's like, really? Does God own me and God owns my time? Yes. Titus 2.14, Jesus gave himself up for us so that he might redeem us from all lawlessness. The word for redeem is the same word we find in the book of Exodus. When God rescued his people, he redeemed them from Egypt. It's the exact same word. God redeemed us. God owns us because we're Christians. We're followers of Christ, right? God owns us, therefore God owns our time. Think about that for a second. You don't own your time. You don't own your time. All of your time is owned by God. That's important. And that's very convicting when you really think about it. So that's the first principle. 
Second principle. The fourth commandment is meant to shine the hope of a sovereign God in a chaotic world. The fourth commandment is meant to shine the hope of a sovereign God in a chaotic world. And this principle comes from the creation story. Now, what did we find in the creation story? God created the world in six days and then he rested and stopped his work on the seventh day. And like Exodus 20 verse 11 says, because six days the Lord God made the, the, the heaven and the earth along with the sea and everything that's in them, but he rested on the seventh day. For this reason, God blessed the seventh day and he set it apart. He set it apart. In other words, Israel, it's not just that God owns your time, Israel. Israel has a mission with the Sabbath day. They're not just relaxing on the Sabbath day. They're actually communicating something about God's plan in this world. They're actually communicating something. Israel can be a visual example to the world that not only does God own all of time, but that he has a plan to use the course of time itself to bring everything back to the way it was. In other words, what is Israel doing when they're patterning themselves after the creation of the world? They're pointing people back to creation. They're reminding people that the world was created in six days, and on the seventh day God rested, and then what did he say? Everything was very good. Everything was perfect. And so they're reminding the world, hey, look, there's a hope. There's a hope that things can be perfect again. Things will be perfect again. And guess what? We have the answer as to how that's going to happen. We have the answer. They actually do that by fulfilling the Sabbath day. I know it's kind of weird, but relaxing on the Sabbath day for Israel was a way to actually witness to the world. That's, the, that's what it was. It was, a, it was. it was, a, in a sense, a gospel-esque witness, okay? And so they're mimicking and, and patterning themselves after the, the, the days of old when God created everything and everything was very good. And so God said, imitate that pattern. Imitate that pattern so that the world won't lose hope. We don't want the world to lose hope. There is a train that is scheduled to get back there, to get back to creation. And Israel has the ticket because Israel has God. So the principle that we can take away for ourselves is one and the same. It's one and the same. There are ways we can help the world see that there is a train scheduled to go back to the way things were, and we have the ticket. And for us, we have a little bit more of the ticket than even Israel did. We have the key to it all, and his name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. He is the key to the whole plan. And the ways that we help the world see this is by managing our own time well for the sake of the gospel. Is your time used for the sake of Christ or is it used for yourself? There are so many ways that we can do a better job of managing our time. So many ways. So many ways we can be better stewards of our time. And so much more could be said here. Um, but for the sake of time, we, I can't really, really expand on more than this. Next time, when we talk about the, the fourth commandment from the New Testament, we'll go more in depth of what this looks like. But for now, please understand this, that you can shine the hope of an all-sovereign God who's in complete control of everything in the middle of a chaotic world. And you can do it by simply using your time wisely for the Lord. 
That's what you can do. Last, last principle is this. The fourth commandment is meant to show you respect God's ownership by respecting the ownership of others. Okay? Now, we've talked about how the creation story plays into the fourth commandment, and we've talked about how the Exodus story plays into the fourth commandment. This last principle doesn't come from a story. This comes from somewhere else, and it's a place we haven't visited yet. This isn't from a story. This isn't even something we've actually seen yet. This comes from the Tenth Commandment, the Tenth Commandment. I remember the Ten, the ten Commandments like, um, um, uh, like to pair up together, kind of like dance partners. And the first four commandments find partners with the last six. Well, the fourth commandment pairs up nicely with the Tenth Commandment because the Tenth Commandment is an extension of the fourth. The Tenth Commandment, as you'll remember, is, well, what's the Tenth Commandment? What, do you, what's the, what, what is it? Do not covet. Very good. Don't covet. Don't covet your neighbor's wife, house, field, male servant, female servant, ox, donkey, virtually anything that belongs to your neighbor. But doesn't that sound familiar? Doesn't that sound familiar? Didn't the fourth commandment already give us a laundry list of the same kinds of things? It did. Six days you shall work, but you must rest on the seventh day. Your sons, your daughters, your male servants, your female servants, your ox, your donkey, your animals, etc., etc., etc. The lists are very similar. And the reason why they're similar is because they go together. They go together. The fourth commandment talks about your stuff, your personal stuff, you know, the stuff that you own. The tenth commandment talks about other people's stuff, other people's stuff, what they own. In the fourth commandment, God says, I own all of your stuff. It's mine, okay? So use it wisely because it's mine. In the 10th commandment, God says, I own everyone else's stuff too. It's theirs. So respect their stuff as their stuff, just as you respect my stuff as mine. The principle is this. You show your love for God by your love for others. Remember, we've talked about this a lot. And that shows up exactly in the fourth commandment as well. You respect God's ownership of your things by respecting other people's ownership of other things. It's a simple concept when you really think about it, but it's so profound. It's so profound. Imagine again that every second is a penny. Every second is a penny. $864 are pouring down the drain every single day. But here's the twist to it all. Here's the kicker. We've been under the assumption this entire time that those $864 are yours, that it's your money. And you're, you, have your, you have your freedom to be able to use it the way you want to or to waste it the way you want to. But it's not yours. That's not your money. It's God's. It's God's because God owns your time. Every second you waste is not your money down the drain. Those $864 are, is, is God's time, it's God's money that you're wasting. Think about that. Every second that you waste, it's not your money. It's money that's been given, you, given to you to be a good steward of. What do you spend God's time on? Not your time. What do you spend God's time on? Is it spent seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness? Or is it spent on yourself? 
like it says in Titus 3.3, spending our pleasures um, uh, on whatever, on indulging our desires. There's a reason why the Bible says it's spending, spending our pleasures, because it's like we're spending money. The fourth commandment invites us to put aside our selfishness, our selfishness, and begin to redeem our time for the sake of Christ, because the days are evil. The days are evil. Father, we thank you so much that you own all of time, because the fact that you own all of time means that you're sovereignly in control of everything. But Father, that brings such a great conviction in our hearts, because we realize that we misuse our time all the time, because it's not really our time, it's yours. If it were our time, we could do whatever we wanted with it, and it wouldn't matter to, to one extent or another. But it does matter because it's your time. You've bought us. You own us. And we should be using our time for your sake. Father, help us to be very aware of ways that we can actually shore up the moments in our lives when we're, we're being selfish and, and we're, we're spending our times on ourselves. Help us to see ways that we can actually redeem our time for the sake of your name. And I pray, Father, that as we um, think about these things and as we look to investigating these things even in the New Testament, that you would guide our understanding to, to, to make practical changes in our lives according to your word. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.